General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, if you have spent time in the Blood Red Skies Ready Room, you will already know our guest. Ken is one of those guys who is involved in the community, pushing us sometimes, dragging us, kicking and screaming other times, but generally trying to help build a better Blood Red Skies community. Ken, it's great to have you on the show tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Doug. I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I can't say enough about what you've done with the Blood Red Skies Ready Room. For those of us that uh, spend our time on Facebook interacting and, and working with that uh, to, to give us a, a better idea of what everyone else is up to, what their hobby techniques are, what their gaming questions are, uh, it's been an invaluable resource. So definitely thank you. Thank you for all the time and effort invested in that. And thank you for the patience as well, dealing with the same question for the hundredth time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that actually is is probably the worst part of the whole thing is that every now and then there's just that question keeps coming up and it's well, I always laugh because that's yeah. one of the problems of the the Facebook platform is uh, no matter how much stuff you put in in frequently asked questions and no many no matter how many times you put things in announcements uh, some people won't get the information or it's, it's, won't read the instructions etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's always fun at least on on my end to see uh, when some of the same recurring questions come up and, and how we handle them and how the community goes, yes, we know, that's 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 worded differently than we would have or, or something like that yeah. and, and see how, uh, how people react to it. But, you know, that's one of the things that we've talked about a number of times on this program is that is also the value of the ready room is that no one seems afraid to go in there and ask questions because nobody jumps on anyone about it. We, we may sigh and go... Yes, we know that's that's not that diagram isn't the most clear yeah. <laughs> or, or things like that. But but in the ready room, you know, what have you seen with the the community and and how it deals with uh, some of those issues? I think the community in the ready room has been very very tolerant and very very helpful, and that's been it's been a joy to um, basically manage a page like that in comparison to some of the others that I've been involved with over the time. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's a welcoming place, um, and that's good. I yeah, mean, we're all and, here and to just <laughs> play with our toy aeroplanes. You know? Exactly. Well, well, I laugh because there's there's always heated discussions, and I've even oh, referred yeah. to, uh, you know, on the podcast previously when, when you and I were talking about uh, the interaction of turrets and, and cards and things like that and, and trying to, to work with Andy to, to maybe close what at least some of us perceived as, perceived as loopholes in the rules. Um, but at least even when we have these kind of spirited discussions, I think, at least in my opinion, there's a feeling that the, uh, the Blood Red Skies Ready Room is there really to make the game better and to make the community better. Uh, and some people will come on and vent, and that, that happens in any community like that. And, and I think it's good, but it's just funny to see that sometimes, um, thankfully, less than, than I've seen in other community organizations, uh, people just kind of get frustrated that people don't like their 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 viewpoint on it or they don't like their reading of the rules but that's any community i think yeah and and we do have to recognize that blood red skies 
does have some loopholes, uh, and there are some there are some rules that probably, with hindsight, could have been reworded differently. And we're still going to have that with airstrike. We, there are some things in airstrike um, that uh, are going to cause problems. And while we're on airstrike, I must apologise, especially to all our American listeners, because there is there is a blindingly horrible. Um, spelling mistake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Don't um, worry. I, I, I laugh that uh, I think uh, I think Andy even said it best. He's like, no matter what happens, you're, you're still going to have them, and you're going to look at it and realize, how did I let that one get through? Oh, well, th- this this is one of those, I'm going to blame it on autocorrect. But, yeah. Um, yeah uh, <laughs> let's just say that we've misspelled Thatch, thatch Weave. <laughs> we've misspelled yeah, yes, his name. <laughs> and it's just like, I was sat looking at it, and I, oh, my God, we're dead. But um, partly because um, there's this attitude, um, you may have noticed it, in the UK that it's our history. You Americans, leave our history alone, you know. Um, when we're talking about things like the Battle of Britain and exactly. things like that. And, and then to go out to somebody else's patch and <laughs> do that. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. But I'm, go- I'm going to say it, it's autocorrect. You know, somebody's, that, that's, that's exactly the problem. Yes. <laughs> well, and, <clears throat> Move and on. we know, we'll, we'll, ad- we'll admit that there is a disconnect sometimes between what Andy sends and what Warlord lays out. And at some points you have to laugh about it and just realize it is what it is, even though I hate that turn of the phrase, um, that uh, we, can, we can always submit something that might be exactly what Andy wants. And then when it comes to the layout artist, you say, how did you mess that up? Because all you had to do was cut and paste. But... That's yeah. that's production. That happens. <laughs> uh, the, the the other classic, which I, I spotted, I still haven't got my copy. I've I've just got the the proofs, the PDF proofs. Uh, although right. apparently I, it's in the post. My has arrived. My, oh. Mine is sitting in the United States. It's wonderful, but I'm not in the United <laughs> States, so so I know it's arrived. Uh, but yeah, we've we've, we've got thankfully, a, unfortunately we've got a brilliant diagram explaining um, firing arcs and things like that, uh, which explains about. Um, the Spitfire is in the rear arc of the uh, Dornier 17. And we've used a Messerschmitt 109 as the uh, the silhouette for the Spitfire. Oops. Even though we have the Spitfire <laughs> silhouette, uh, everything's there, you know. Uh, and we did spot it in the proofs. It just seems to have slipped. So, uh, But, but I mean, this this is rivet counting. It, it's, it doesn't affect the, um, the value of the product in itself. I think, actually, that's a damn fine... Um, Andy's done a I, good I job it's... on that. From everything I've seen in the in the late production document that uh, Andy and you were were good enough to share with us on the on the podcast, um, it looked very good to me. I mean, we're always going to find those, but it is still hilarious to me the things that get missed when they get missed, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you just just have to roll your eyes and realize that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, we're all human. Um, exactly. Yeah, which is good. Um, well, but speaking it, of, it, it, it's it's the, one of the things on the ready room going back to the tolerance and, and the opinions on the ready room. It's it's this certainty that everyone has, and I tend to think that actually the more you play the game, the more you realise that um, because of the parameters of the game, you you have to accept that there's always going to be a problem. Um, um, like I say, there's there's parts of the rules that are, that. That me and Andy, well, 
and he always has the first, last, and, and every say. Um, but we've we've we try to steer him in certain directions, and he usually does. He, he's actually he's a strange overlord, is Andy Chambers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, he's been. Uh wonderfully uh, benevolent with any of the things I've brought to him. And I know at times I've had to kind of stand my ground and say, Andy, I know you don't think it's an issue, but I've answered the question at least 20 times in the ready room, which means yeah. Ken's answered it 40 times. Yeah, <laughs> All I'm um, asking for is a simple diagram, Andy. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I think, I think what you've got to recommend with Andy, I mean, I, I don't know him that well. I've uh, met him well, quite a few times now. Uh, and we regularly correspond through various electronic means um he is a professional games designer um and there's a couple of things in in that that you have to think through he does understand much better than we do in general the implications of rule systems and game systems and he, he's quite you know, surprisingly good at it you know um so as a as a gamer, which is what the rest of us are, rather than a games designer, um, we have different viewpoints on on the way things work. He's very, very. Uh, he he does like to say that's the guillotine date. That's when it happens. It stops yeah. there. And if we have a problem, then we have a problem. You know that that goes into thing, right. and we, we'll deal with it later. And he he very much doesn't like um, revision of stuff that's been published. Um, Which I laugh but, with him being uh, from the Warhammer background. I'm like, oh my gosh, didn't it change editions every five years and then like yeah. two years? So, so I but, always, I always tease Andy about that. I'm like, thank you for introducing me to the uh, the epic uh, revision change uh, via the versions of 40k, <laughs> <laughs> dumping my world on its head every few years. I, I think I think his his view on it is is based on his experience, and it, it is just that if you constantly tinker with something. You never settle um, into a, a finite version, and that well, often, absolutely. even though the changes may be sensible in some ways, the disruption that those changes cause. I, I, I mean, if we look at stats and things that we've done for aircraft over the the last two years, um, I do think that um, yeah, there are situations where we got them wrong. And I'd be, oh, we must rush to, to correct this. And Andy will say, no, don't worry about it. Players will correct it themselves or we can guide them into that. But we're just not going to be able to produce a new Mosquito card, a new Spitfire card, whichever it happens to be. Um, right. So you, you've just got to live with it. And, uh, yeah, I have found that when he makes his little sort of rulings when, when in our little groups when we're discussing it, when he makes his rulings, usually what happens is he's right. Um, <laughs> heard how that works out when you're the designer. Yeah, yeah, he he knows what he's doing, sort of thing. And I've learned to trust. His, yeah, and, and the other thing that 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 happens is that where he's not right, he will come round. He he uh, he does listen, which uh, absolutely is uh, actually a very valuable trait to have. And he seems well, a thoroughly he, nice chap as well. He is, and I always tease him for ruining so many years of my life with his uh, various games that he's designed. So I'm always indebted in that, all the hours I've lost to his creations. Um, but I think it's interesting as, as we talk about Blood Red Skies evolving and it being a fairly young 
as a released game system, not necessarily young in all the years that, that Andy's put into designing, playtesting, fooling with the system before it went uh, live as a published system. But uh, it is one of those things that I think we all have to understand. It's, it's, balanced, it's balancing a couple different, um, different difficult audiences. I mean, when you deal with World War II, you're going to deal with rivet counters, grognards, and people who, who want a simulation. And it's not. We talk about it all the time as a beer and pretzels game. You know, it's, it's a fun game. It's not a simulation. Uh, and I think that sometimes wears on a certain crowd. And likewise, <laughs> uh, as you've just started doing and, and hosting tournaments, uh, the competitive crowd. I mean, there's there's people like me who couldn't give a fuck about competitive. <laughs> oh, Roger's it's in like, exactly the same boat he, he has. Exactly. It's, it's the way I feel. And I'm like, I, I just couldn't care. I know people love competitive in, in this genre. I couldn't care less. But, you know, it's, it's a... It's a group that we have to satisfy as we go forward as a community and, and realize that we have to figure out how it works. And so um, I really wanted to talk a little bit about the last competition you just ran and, and yeah. things that you saw out there. I mean, overall, it sounds like a success. Nobody packed up their plastic airplanes and went home. <laughs> so, um, right? Yeah, it or was. was it was frustrated. It was. It was a good. It was a. It was a small tournament. We only had um, eight players. So. Um, Partly due to the actual venue and partly due to getting people to the location because it, it's it's a, a Sunday in the north of England. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it worked very well. We had a really good mix of um, squadrons, if we can use that phrase for them. Um, and we had some really tight games. Um, yeah, I think everybody enjoyed it. Certainly everybody seems to be up to going and doing it again when we can get another okay. one organized. Well, we, we always kind of grit our teeth and have said the dreaded M word meta. What's the, yeah. what's the meta look like? I know previously we saw uh, highly inexperienced but vast swarm numbers, kind of a, almost an yeah. X-Wing TIE Fighter style, uh, style uh, competitive uh, list. What, what did you see that kind of struck you as either odd or... Or was the, the meta shifting to something much more reasonable? The shift seems to be, um, you're right, the swarm lists. Um, we, we ran a similar event a year ago, and one of the lists that, that shocked the hell out of everyone was um, a hurricane spawn. It was just, just um, pilot level two hurricanes everywhere. Uh, now, I was flying, flying. I was using martlets, um, wildcats. Uh, and I for those of us on the other side of the pond, <laughs> yeah, we'll loan them to you. <laughs> yes, we, we did pay for them. I think you'll find. Uh, but yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I played against that, and that was trouser filling. It was, um, it was, it was a game of whack a mole. I had better pilot skills. I could outmaneuver them all the time, but I could only outmaneuver one at a time. Uh, and once they were down, okay, obviously, once you got them down to disadvantage, then. It really was a case of just having to fly defensively and keep them down. Um, it, it ended up as a draw. We both broke uh, at the end on, on boom chits. This year, no swarms. Um, there were a couple that were semi-swarms. One of the lads had brought some, um, I think it was um, Focke-Wulf 190s, which I still think is the best aircraft in the game so far. Um, and he had a couple of reasonable pilots and then the rest as rookies to keep the numbers up. Um, at the other end of the scale, we had four Wildcats, all with aces. 
um, and neither of those actually worked. I thought. I thought the ones that the the lists that seemed to work were the ones that were in the middle. There were um, five or six aircraft with a, a reasonable mix of pilot skills. Um, right. Yeah, it was interesting, and there was a lot of this metagaming going on with theater cards and doctrine cards, which well, is part of the game. That's what I was going to ask: is how how did that shift uh, work? Where it became less about the airplanes, but it was about the uh, unbeatable combination of theater and doctrine and an airplane. Um, I don't think there was that. I, I, there's, I, I get very sort of grumpy when people start talking about metas because I think what happens with metas especially in competition wargaming is that the person who shouts the loudest about their wonderful concept <laughs> tends to um, you know and, and it's it's like this always works and it's yes but it only works because of the people that you're playing against right, uh, right. haven't brought something to deal with it or that coincidentally deals with it in another way um so that that four ace list um on first contact people were were stepping away from it and going oh I don't like the look of this it's rolling an awful lot of dice because there were mother hen um set them up a couple of other right, supportive right. cards so basically everybody was supporting each other but what it actually meant was they were all flying around in this tight little ball in the middle of the table um and I, I didn't play against it myself but I watched one of the one of the other guys playing against it, Dan with his Spitfire Nines, and, and basically all that happened was a, a gap opened up. Um, a Spitfire Nine got in there and just hammered one of the Wildcats. He didn't make his saves, and um, down he went. And at that point, the the whole thing just fell apart. Um, <laughs> right. So it, it, it's, yeah, Met is a, yeah, I don't know. But I, I think well, that the way to go, I mean, you've got to bear in mind as well that we were talking about 500 points, which is quite restrictive. Um, Absolutely. And I think that that probably is a sensible thing for that style of tournament, if we're talking about three games in a session, an hour for a game. Um, that would give us enough time to... Well, it did give us enough time to play the games to a conclusion, pretty much. Um, right, right. And still get some shopping in and see the rest of the... Because it, it was a War Games convention. It's a, quite a good War Games convention. Um, so we all got running around and did some shopping and actually got some refs and fed ourselves and you know nobody died of exhaustion at the end of it which was good and I <laughs> felt very massively superior as we were walking past the, on our way out to shop and go and get our lunch and what have you past the other guys who we knew were going to be there until so that it started at nine in the morning they were going to be there till five o'clock and We'd started about quarter past ten, and we were finished by half past two, including a break for lunch and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so, so all the you, uh, Team Yankee and check your six guys that are oh. uh, still yelling across the table at each other about the first turn. <laughs> yeah, um, it, and it's it's Blood Red Skies is uniquely fitted to that sort of tournament set. Well, maybe not uniquely because obviously you've got X Wing and things like that, but um, it does really play well in that that setup. And yes, you're going to have people who are complaining about a particular card sequence. I mean, we had a lovely... Um, Chris Jarrett had brought his J2M red ends and he had um, tropical filters and right. um, <laughs> tropical weather conditions and everyone was a little bit sort of, oh, but I thought well, that's... Not only is that sort of thematically correct, it's quite an interesting sort of mix. Uh, yeah, and it worked. Um, the one that 
if there are, I mean, this is a learning experience. I mean, the, the piece of equipment that caused the most sort of problem was drop tanks. Right, um, right. I think we talked about that, that there's a point where you sit there and look at that and go, wow, is, is that going to, is that going to unbalance yeah. everything to the, to the ahistorical level, which, which, you know, you're not going to get in a competition. It's not going to mm-hmm. be exactly the way the aircraft were fielded, but you'll be like, I'm looking at all kinds of aircraft that didn't carry drop tanks, suddenly carrying them in this, uh, yeah. this setup. Guilty as charged. My MiG threes yeah. had them. Um, now, 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 I, I do understand that the, the, the Soviets did have um, external tanks for stretching the range on some of their aircraft. Whether that was MiG threes or not, I don't really know. Right. But uh, it, 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 it was such a no-brainer, and I think that that's something the tournament organisers probably need to address. Um, the solution might simply be to say that you only take one piece of equipment. Right. Um, right. And at that point, yeah. And and there was one situation where um, the drop tanks would have been a disadvantage because of the, the reduction of your speed on turn one right. uh, could have lost an initiative situation. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's, there's a couple interesting combinations like that where there are aircraft in the game with exactly the same uh, max speed, so it, it makes a, an yeah. interesting play out at the beginning. Or, um, as we've talked about with some of the the theater and doctrine cards it's it's different than some other games in the sense of those a lot of times really play against your opponent uh, mm-hmm. in the early phases so all of a sudden your enemies you know theater cards uh, have a huge impact that you may not have thought about you may not have thought of every every combination thereof so but that that's what you have to deal with in a competition and that's why I couldn't care less <laughs> yeah, I, think I, I, I understand why people are um wary about joining tournaments and competitions but my response to that tends to be well the name at the front tells you what it is it's we're not recreating the battle of britain or the battle of midway or whatever it's it's it and and i think that there is there is a, a and andy's pretty similar with this i mean roger as i said just just who who does a lot of the the historical work and he's really the co-author of blood red skies um to a greater or lesser extent, he doesn't like the idea of tournaments at all. <laughs> um, but Andy's quite sort of reasonable about it, and, and you've got to recognise that the tournament play actually appeals to a, a player base, and people see it played at, at, at competitions and at tournaments. We'll get well, into the game and, and then see the to, rest. To succeed in the US and in some locations overseas that I've seen as I've, I've been travelling, uh, you have to have the competitive side because that's just what they associate with miniatures wargaming. Uh, for for right or for wrong, um, that's kind of what they think about. If it's not a bunch of you know dusty old men in somebody's basement with Napoleonic's figures, that's <laughs> that's what they think of as historical narrative play, um, yeah. and that everything else is competitive. So so I totally understand where people come from on that. And it's as much as I may grit my teeth, uh, I enjoy a little bit of competitive gaming, but I enjoy what I've always called light competitive, like uh, playing yeah. the 500 point zone mortalis lists at Adepticon, where the game is quick, it's fun, you're drinking beer, and nobody cares because you're playing three or six games in, in one day, uh, and everybody's going to lose some, everybody's going to win some, and we're all going to have a good time. <laughs> you, are, you are using phraseology there that means nothing to me. I, I am not a Games Workshop player and have never played 40k. Uh, I have well, never. I'm so happy for you. You haven't wasted that much of your money in your life. And <laughs> I haven't played 40k. I haven't played the other one, wherever it's called, Warhammer, in right, any of right. its forms. Build fantasy battles and yeah, uh, none of that. Yeah, uh, 
Um, what is your gaming background? So, so that oh. is one of the things I've always glossed over uh, and treated you like a blood red skies only guy. Tell me, tell the podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm history. I'm a traditional historical. Grunia, yeah, I suppose. Rivet cards. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's the, it's an interesting point because of the the development of um, the different styles of gaming on the other side of the pond. Is interesting in, in the UK we have a lot of gaming clubs like local gaming clubs that have got their own sort of venues and so our games are this is before the friendly local gaming store concept came around I was brought up to go to a war games club where we had eight six before tables or something like that and there'd be a different game on each table and you'd arrange it in advance and the games would last three hours because you had to pack up at the end of the evening sort of thing um, and then in the 90s, um, because I'm that old, I started to, um, I got involved with um, Fire and Fury's World War II set of rules, um, which are excellent, by the way, but they're not actually, it's difficult to describe them as Fire and Fury because of the Battlefront World War II. They're from the same team that did Fire and Fury. Um, and I did some work with them just as, um, on on the British supplement, and it got to be a really interesting process, and that that's what engaged me with the American way of playing, which at the time was, as you say, dusty old men in there, refighting Gettysburg. You know, yeah, it really was, and it's it's fascinating because to me, I I grew up with a very different you know wargaming experience, um, in a sense, almost it was a precursor to the friendly local gaming store. You know, in the 70s and uh, early 80s, my, my parents had a bookstore, and mm -hmm. that's where I was introduced to wargaming and role-playing gaming, and, and I remember there always being tables at the back of the bookstore that were always available for wargaming, and it was, it was kind of funny because um, it seemed like the community, for some reason, got away from that and only, at least in the United States, only did that for role-playing games. You know, if you yeah. if you wanted to play War at Sea, if you wanted to play Victory in the Pacific or any one of these board games, you were in somebody's basement with, you know, a bunch of other guys and it was just not, um, there wasn't a, a, a local scene to it. It was kind of people that all played war games. Um, and then it's, it seemed to me somewhere after the advent of, of Warhammer uh, and Warhammer 40K in the US that that gaming stores kind of came back because all of us used to go, we'd buy our stuff at the hobby store and there were no gaming tables there. There there barely was even room for them to show you how to paint uh, a model or a miniature or to do airbrushing. It was, you bought your stuff, you took it home and you sat in your dusty basement. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it was, uh, so it wasn't a community scene, so it was, it was refreshing to me as as game stores have have really evolved back into this, um, where it feels like the community that that is how I started because I just remember being this you know young kid that people took under their arm and said okay we'll show you how to play war at sea push these counters around roll these dice yes we sank your ships now go away kid, um, but uh, but that's that's how I grew up on gaming so it's it's a lot of fun to to do that again and I know at least in my local area in Buford, it's it's a very small, not necessarily very very diverse gaming group. They tend to all kind of play the same games, but mm -hmm. it, it's nice to have that uh, that ability to go go to a game store and hang out. Yeah, I mean, my, my local game store is excellent, um, but it's still dominated by GW. 
it, it, the percentage of GW to historical gaming goes up and down, but it, it's mostly dominated by GW. And, uh, you know, you have to live with that. Um, I blame Andy Chambers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> I always tease him about that. I'm like, you did, did ruin us with all the 40K and, and Epic and all those Battlefield mm. Gothic, all those systems. But it was it was it was kind of refreshing to me to come out here to Asia, and I was uh, was in Singapore a few days ago, and to roll into the store, see that they had a, a large Warlord game section, and then gritting my teeth, knowing they were gonna tell me that they only played 40k, to turn around and go, so you guys play some of these Warlord games here, and they go, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we we have yeah. a few Blood Red Skies players, not many, but yeah, we'll play Bolt Action, and and so it was uh, it was nice to at least. Uh, find somewhere that wasn't dominated by 40k, even though as I was there, people were pulling out their uh, their war cry miniatures for uh, mm-hmm. for Warhammer skirmish and stuff like that. So I think we're probably wandering into areas that the audience are not that interested. In. Exactly, they're like, oh, we don't care about <laughs> There's two old days. men sat there telling, oh, you, I remember when I remember yeah. the days. Yes, exactly. yes. And you tell exactly. the young people that nowadays, and they won't believe you. No, um, they don't believe yeah. how it started. Yeah, but no, I mean that that was me from the outset. It was it was historical gaming at our local war games club. I went to university, historical gaming at the university war games club. Um, vaguely was aware of 40k and the like, but never really. When 40k was making its peak, I was busy doing other things. Um, and yeah, so yeah. Well, uh, as you've heard me say, I I got out of playing 40k longer than some people have played it. So I yeah. I played it in the uh, in the late 80s. Uh, loved it. Played it into the early 90s. Walked away from it for probably nearly 18 years. <laughs> and wargaming in general. I, I'll be honest. This has been an interesting thing for me to come back to wargaming, um, and in a sense to see where what I kind of felt was my hobby, how it has evolved and changed, and where those of us that were young kids have now become the dusty old men <laughs> pushing yes. our historical miniatures around the table, uh, how, it's, how it's changed. Um, well, you know, one of the things we talked about with Blood Red Skies is that it's, it's continuing to evolve. So oh, it yes. uh, started as a, a World War II, very, um, very basic system. And then, well, some, some jets were talked about and some MIG alley stuff was introduced and some World War II jets have now started to show up. Um, where do you think, uh, or I should say, how do you think that evolution has gone? Has it, um, in your mind, been uh, fairly painless and everyone's been fairly accepting? Or has it been a little bit of pulling hen's teeth and beating people with the, the aircraft cards to say, just play them, just try them? <laughs> I think on the whole, it's it's been okay. Um, the, the discussion around Megali and Korea was interesting because um, going back to... I don't want to buff him up too much. Brandy's genius sort of move on the the jet card. When when he sort of popped this jet card at us, and we we all said, "Well, don't know whether that works." Played it and suddenly realised that well, actually, yes, it does work, and and it changes the game. I think for a lot of World War Two players, if you, if you're used to Blood Red Skies and the World War Two setting, where it can often turn into some horrible fur well not horrible but an intense fur ball in the middle of the table with with everybody just bouncing on everything else as soon as you start playing the jets and seeing just how different it plays it, it it's quite a step back so i think that that worked well um the big thing that i think 
um, is still a challenge is multi-engines and twins. Um, Absolutely. It's, yeah, it is where it is. And if you, just to go back a little, I, I got involved in Blood Red Skies just as it was starting to be mentioned publicly as a game set. And I wrote a little blog article and I hassled some people about it and got onto the, I contacted Andy and I think that's how it worked. I ended up doing some playtesting um, and then got involved with Roger and Andy and on from there. And I was running the, I set the ready room up straight away, like as soon as I saw it, because I thought this is going to be something that's going to be worth talking about. Um, and the multi-engined aircraft rules always feel a little clunky to me. Um, but the heavy fighter rules that we've got now in Airstrike have fixed most of the problems you can still play. You can choose to play them either way. I'm still not 100% convinced that we're, we're exactly in the sweet spot on, on things like Mosquitoes and P-38s. Um, but we're getting there. Um, yeah, other than I, that. No, we've played it uh, both ways with P-38s, uh, with Brett and I, and have, have tried out the heavy fighter rules as well as playing them as standard uh, by-the-book multi-engines. And I, I don't... I don't know what the right answer is. I know Heavy Fighters feels better, <laughs> yeah. um, but it still doesn't quite feel right to me, but I think part of that is I just need um, a lot more games playing it either way to, to understand, because I, I feel comfortable with multi-engine every time I fly bombers. Um, yeah. That seems to make sense. There, there may be one or two uh, ways that... that you know, local gaming groups and house rules can tweak multi-engine to to give it a little bit more flavor. But uh, I think the addition of the heavy fighters rules helps people at least play something that's a little more cinematic to them and not feel like they're uh, they're playing a uh, an aircraft that just can't fight as a fighter. You know. Yeah. So I, I think that's, I, I that's think we it. had a problem with agile, uh, the agile trait. Right. Um, and it it went back to the initial concept of traits being card driven um, and initially when we protested Agile we actually were, were thinking of playing the card right. and it working at that spot yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but that threw up so many issues as to well, did it just affect that instance or was it from that point on and if that was the case would you have the choice of playing it early or later and the simplistic answer the simple kiss keep it simple stupid answer was it's always on right um right. and it does work uh for a given value of work but it may not be what everybody wants or so so it's, it will evolve and i think one of andy's sort of um traits himself is that he, he doesn't want to constantly rewrite things where he has a, a system that he's comfortable with um he'll he'll stick with it um and i think that the that's probably a very good thing from a rules sort of developer stroke writer's point of view we oh, don't yeah. keep flip-flopping between one concept and the next well um, and it's the things that you you know you have to uh you have to grit your teeth and move on because we've talked about yeah. it on the podcast. I think I even talked to Andy at one point about it. It's, it's you know, the concept of multi-engine and then of counting actual discrete engines, um, there's always going to be 
a variant or an airplane that runs afoul of what your design sure. is. And I, and I always use the HE-177 that, sure, it is a four-engined airplane. There, there are four actual engines on the airplane. However, there's only two-engine pods. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so, I don't, I don't so think anybody's ever seen a HE-177 run on three engines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I, so I've laughed, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure if I shot up one of those engines, that entire pod is going to eat it. <laughs> so, so, But it's one of those things. It's, it's the rules you deal with, and, and in the... Um, in the Luftwaffe expansion, the you know the 177 card is in there, and it's in there as a four engine, and so I don't know that that many people have even played it to try it, um, but I think as we do some of the Stalingrad scenarios, we may have to see uh, yeah. how that plays out as a four engine, or do we come back and go, okay, you're right, guys, this really should have been a twin engine bomber um, or attack aircraft, I should say. So, well, I, I think that the, when we judge um, stats and things like that. It's useful to remember that this is a growing game and it's an evolving game, um, and that the the path from that box set two years ago to where we are now with Airstrike and the various sort of expansions isn't something that has been laid down from the outset. In fact, there's been numerous occasions where everybody's looked and said, well, we don't know whether we're going to be able to continue with this game development. Right, um, right. A warlord, warlord, have been very, very um, positive about the game, and they've been excellent in a lot of the decisions that they've made. But they face restrictions as to what they can do. There was a point. Uh, I don't suppose it's it, it, it's not a secret. A couple of years ago, um, just after the first sets of plastics came out, the not the soft plastics, but the hard plastic, the hurricane mosquito. Right. Um, where we were looking at a release schedule that was blank for a year, uh, just because Warlord couldn't didn't have the capacity to fill those gaps. Um, from our point of view, or from my point of view, uh, I was really keen to get the data cards out there because we'd sort of the game had tied itself to data cards um, right. itself, and, and trade cards itself were a, were a thing that was brought in. To, to sort of piggyback on the the whole tournament scene and the X-wing scene, and people thought that that was the that's the current thing, and you know, so so the rules were were built with that concept in mind, and produced the first set was produced with that concept in mind, and then Warlord basically says, well, there's the Hurricanes, there's the Fokker Wolves, um, but we're not now going to be able to deliver what was actually supposed to be plastic P-38s and P-40s, I think. Um, that's not going to happen now for another year at least. Um, and there was a distinct sort of, well, how do we deal with that? And, and the solution was that, that we came up with was, well, if we can do the data cards as a pack, then, frankly, Warlord's right. release schedule isn't so important. Um, <laughs> exactly. Because it, the options are there to keep the game growing. Just to keep the game growing is the important thing. That's one of the things about the Ready Room is we, we really just try to keep the game. It's such a crowded market space. Um, with, well, that um, is one of the huge problems right now. Yeah. Is there's so many games out there and, and so yeah. many different diverse ways to... Spend your gaming dollars or pounds Absolutely. or euros or whatever you have. Yeah, it's um, it's it is a problem. And I, as I was standing there in the game store in Singapore the other day, it was it was bad to me because um, I, I had this problem that there were games I hadn't seen. 
uh, that I had only read about. I'd, I'd never seen them in the in the physical flesh of the miniature in that sense. Uh, and now I'm standing there in the game store holding them. That thankfully my suitcase was already full of clothes for the trip, because <laughs> otherwise a bunch of those things might have jumped out and ended up in my uh, in my shopping cart. Absolutely, and this this is the problem. So a game that that was in Blood Red Sky's position where we had the initial starter set and the five plastic, soft plastic. Um, squadron boxes plus a couple of hard plastic squadron boxes and then nothing for a year it was not well who knows what would have happened but the, the chances were it would have been forgotten right, uh, right. or, or you know there needs to be more to it so we went with the cards uh, we sold the idea of that I mean initially we sat down and says well you know if, if we were to introduce something a product that Warlord could sell um, that would tide us over until we could get some releases through. You know, what's the pluses and minuses of that? Well, down the line, it turns out that everybody's got all of the tight turn cards in the world. Now I can paper a wall with tight turn cards. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> you know? And I think uh, I just got a bunch more with my next <coughs> RAF expansion I bought again. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and we, we there's, there's, there's some things that ended up in there that with hindsight, well, you know, maybe we got that wrong. Um, the Spitfire. 14 classic example um where we sort of went a little bit too far down the rabbit hole with heavy hitter um where it should probably have just been tight turn great climb uh which is the way i have every intention of playing mine now that mine have arrived um but yeah um but but that was there those decisions were made based on the information that we had at the time and then We'd started down the route, Warlord had, had agreed to produce them, and, and they were happy to produce them, and they're quite a nice product, you know, they, they yeah, do sell, I, they look good. I like them, because it it keeps interest in the game, and, and gets people trying different aircraft without necessarily having more boxed kits, more overhead, yeah. more stock on the shelves, people can go... Uh, they can either proxy it with the aircraft they yeah. have if the variants are close enough, or they can go buy third-party miniatures, which I think yeah. um, in the big scheme is fine because Warlord is not going to instantly go to the uh, the diversity of a uh, of an aircraft uh, model line like AIM has, where they're handcrafted oh. <laughs> from resin, you know, poured every yeah. time you order something. So um, we'll see where it goes with the new direct sales, I think. I think that will, well, that, that that will be interesting. That. <laughs> That's something that... that that again is quite an interesting thing is that and it actually is probably the reason that I got most interested in Blood Red Skies was from the production questions right. uh, it was clear that that, that um, if you ever visited Warlord they have an, an amazing um, resin section it's run by a couple of ladies who, who basically are just incredibly gifted at producing resin models but they produce them one at a time. Right. Um, so having said, well, we can't get, because the plastic tooling is expensive and takes an awful long time, having said that, you know, we'd like to have some, some models in something other than plastic, can we do them in resin? Um, and everybody expects that Warlord can, oh, yes, we'll do all them all in resin because they do resin models. But when you actually see the production process, it is very much a craft process. It's, it's right. you know, a, a mold can last for 50 models or a mold can last for five models. And then if that fails, you have to remake the mold. Right. Um, 
Which is fine if you're selling bolt-action tanks where somebody wants a single King Tiger or something like that. But the volume of stuff that you would need to do Blood Red Skies, um, you know, a minimum of six aircraft in a box. Exactly. <laughs> that's just not going to be viable. So they needed another solution, and, and that's where we got to the metal. I mean, the Warlord, where everybody said it, it was, well, if we're going to spin cast things, it should be in resin because of the problems with the, the weight of the models. But uh, Warlord couldn't or weren't very comfortable with attempting it at the time, is my understanding. I mean, I'm sure they can speak for themselves. I should spot, should point out, I'm totally independent of them, and the only information I get is like by sort of creeping around the corridors every now and then. And, <laughs> exactly. You know, but, but my, it, it's the only my impression. Asking the right questions at the, at the pub. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my, my impression is that, that Warlord are very comfortable with metal or were very comfortable with metal and didn't have the, the skill set. They had a massive skill set and experience with metal. Right. So right. it was their go-to, was we're going to do it in metal. Uh, and everybody says, well, it's not... Not great. Um, there are issues, but if the choice is you can have the metal now, or you may or may not get the model at all in a year's time, then yeah, I'll take metal. Thank you. Yeah. yeah uh, exactly. And and now they've they've cracked this resin situation. Um, the the resin releases. Um, um, just got a box of um, me two six twos have arrived, and they're lovely models. Um, and the comparison, it was interesting because I had some of the MiG-3s that in metal and then got the resin set and the comparison between the two was a really interesting one to make. Um, it's clear that, and I think you did point it out on, on one of the, the podcasts earlier, that um, the metal detail was, was sharper. Um, right, right. But um, I think with the 262s and what have you, they've taken that into account. So they've, they've, they've emphasised some of the details a little bit more, so we're getting much more panel lining and things like that. I think they, I, I think they've they've nailed it now. It's just a case of them getting transferring the production of the other models that are already out in metal into into resin, and we'll be yeah we'll be in a golden age, <laughs> the sunlit uplands. Um, well, speaking of the golden age and where yeah. where blood red skies uh, keeps evolving to, um, well. Andy said the V word, and to quote yeah. a famous American movie, "motherfucking Vietnam." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what is your take on on the future, the future of jets, Vietnam? Yes, no, maybe horrible idea, great idea. What do you think? That's 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 a, a leading question, that Doug. And of you know the answer is. is that we. <laughs> I know the answer, but I'm asking it anyway. Okay. Um, yes, Vietnam is probably going to happen warlord we made a pitch to warlord um to do something for vietnam and they've said they're quite enthusiastic about it actually so we are going to try and get vietnam to work um i'll digress a little bit into our into the dreaded case one two and three but we, we have three pitches um pitch one is just a squadron set that that is very similar to um Megali. Case two is something more akin to um, airstrike, uh, and case three is a full rewrite. Uh, case one and two, well, case one is basically just going to be very limited changes, but hopefully we can do it in such a way as to make the game work. Case two would be something a lot more, and then case three would be a whole rewrite. Um, case one, we certainly, well, as you know, 
we're, we're, we're banging each other's heads against walls and things on case one because there are some things that we don't agree with or that we're coming from. And I'll say now that having fighter pilots on the uh, playtesting group is a nightmare. Um, because well, dealing with those jet assholes anyway. I hate yeah. those guys. Oh, wait. You know, what do they know? <laughs> what do they know? Oh, they think they know yeah. everything, which yeah. we do. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, they, well, you know, digressing into the, the whole point about being a fighter pilot is you've got to be a... a a, a totally self-confident jock anyway because you're doing that thing is a dangerous thing that you guys do you know and if you don't have faith in your ability and your equipment and your doctrine then you know that it's going to be a disaster so i understand that um sometimes i worry that we we shift too far into the well historically this doesn't happen and that doesn't happen and i'm going ah but oh, yeah. in the game well, and, it and that's works. always a, that's always a consideration i mean you're yeah. as you're going from a a, trying to not be a simulation, trying to be a beer and pretzels game, but still get to that point where it feels right. The, the question, yeah. you know, I always tell people, and, and you and I have talked about it, argued about it, yelled at each other about it, is, <laughs> um, is well, what happens when everyone who's a product of Top Gun, Iron Eagle, you know, whatever uh, movies they've seen, what happens when none of that is really how it works? <laughs> you know, yeah. how, do you, how do you compromise and make the game feel like uh, fast jet combat, but but not um, be so um, so video game like or so so arcade game like that it's that it's not really a simulation of jet warfare. Yeah, I, I think that there's a happy medium in there somewhere. I mean, as I've said before, if I wanted to be a fighter pilot, I'd have signed up. You know, it'd have been you. But uh, <laughs> you know, be glad that... you didn't. You didn't miss anything. It was horrible, terrible, no fun at all. I'm, I'm totally sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But you did get the cool sunglasses. Um, exactly. I, I, I just, I, yeah, it's it's a game. The the gamer wants to to suspend disbelief and have an hour's worth of fun making jet noises and whoosh noises and, you know, um, yeah, that that's what we have to aim for. The the all these things are this sort of beer and pretzels to simulation curve is is. It is where it is, and you've got to pick a point somewhere along that. But if you if you want to be a fighter pilot, then you should really just sign up to be a fighter pilot yeah. because that's the only way you'll <laughs> experience it properly. Give you give know. away hours of your time and go play Air War. <laughs> oh. Spend six hours to play three turns. Uh, this this yeah. is exactly the point. The joy of Blood Red Skies is just how dynamic the whole damn thing is. Yeah. Um, the lack of plotting, the lack of that that whole record keeping and chart looking up and all of that the well, genius that was the, yeah the fun with uh, at least with my local Beaufort uh, South Carolina gaming group was uh, to get them uh, to play MIG Alley and to realize that wow that was really different than than the World War II phase of Blood Red Skies and the fact that you're you're able to do things without this horrendous overhead of of gaming thought that isn't a part of the of, of really of flying and they're like well, this is great i'm pushing jets around and making snap decisions oops we just got shot down because that was a terrible decision you know that yeah. that uh, that whole fun of it and when when you played a quick game and somebody lost who cares that was 45 minutes an hour let's you know we still have plenty of time let's play it again let's do something different and i think that's the important thing that we we, we need to keep in mind is that there are other games that have done the micromanagement side of of Jet combat, and, and people are producing guys. them. I, yeah. I keep seeing them on on various Facebook groups and then on the internet that people still are producing very uh, 
detailed grognard rivet counting uh, aviation games, and that's great. I- I'm glad people want an individual big data tracker for each airplane. Uh, I just lose my mind trying to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, if I wanted to do that, I'd join the air force. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I think that the the true sort of worth of Blood Red Skies is is that sort of speed and dynamism of it. And if every time we introduce something that slows that process down, we detract from it and move ourselves closer and closer to becoming those other games. Well, so with, yeah. without giving away too much of what's being playtested in, in some of mm. the proposed Vietnam rules, where, where are some of those compromises? Where, where are some of the things that um, you and I and some of the other playtesters that, that we've sat there and gone round and round over, over issues where we, we just can't come to an impasse or can't come to an agreement because uh, it really gets to that core of making it a fun game and not making it a simulation? I think I think that the one that the things that are really going to be sort of problems for people are where and, and you and I I think agree on this one this particular one is missile counts um, counting individual yeah. hard points yeah. and things just isn't going to work and and realistically the number of times you get into a missile firing situation uh, are quite limited so do we need to count missiles um, and uh, it was yourself that proposed not to, and I thought, well, actually, yeah, okay, I can go with that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, now I'll be reviled by the Grognard community for for being the one. That well, exactly. That. You know, the, I, I've got two twin hard points on the size of my Phantom that that, that <laughs> can carry my M9s, and and you know that means I've got four. Well, it does. But um, yeah, do you fire them individually or singly? Well, you know, it depends on circumstances, but probably in pairs. We have run ahead a little here. One of the things that I think is quite clear is that with the current architecture of Blood Red Skies, we can get to Vietnam and maybe early Arab-Israeli wars, but anything beyond that, we're really going to struggle. And we would have to go to a whole rewrite uh, beyond that. Which we know is not going to happen, at least at this stage. but I think for, for the players out there who are curious about it, um, there's definitely a, a possible road ahead for Vietnam. Um, oh, yeah. I think everyone just has to manage expectations that um, yeah. that, that we're, we're evolving a World War II gaming system here. And Andy has been very, very specific when we playtest things to say, this is my game. It's going to have my vision. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for your good ideas. Uh, go back to making oh, an yeah. Andy Chambers game, not making uh, a Doug or a Ken view of, of the world. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, the, the, the way that Andy's, he, he sat there in his little eerie watching us, yeah. and he will he will swoop at some yes. point in time. <laughs> and um, he will be armed with a big red sort of felt-tip marker, and he will be just drawing lines through lots of the things that we've done. Um, but yeah, that's that's to be understood. And like I say, he is quite good at what he does, so it, it's always worth listening to him on those grounds. <laughs> well, so um, let's talk about the other seven hundred pound gorilla with uh, with Vietnam, which is model size. Airplanes kept getting bigger and bigger as we transitioned from the Saber into mm-hmm. you know the F eight, F four. Where do we think that's going to go? Well, in some ways. I think it's a decision that's been made for us. It's going to be one two hundredth scale. Um, now, that's because my belief is that Warlord, who are going to be the the production side of this, are going to want to go to one hundred to want to two hundredth scale because their ethos is to produce models in that sort of scale. 
Um, I know that there's always an outcry when Warlord do something in a, a non-traditional scale. So um, when they brought out Cruel Seas in 1 300th scale, when everybody else was playing in 1 600th scale, um, and when they brought out the Black Sails, the Napoleonics thing, um, in 700 scale, when everybody else is in 1200 scale. But the truth of the matter is that they, their reasoning is, is, I'm sure that there is an element of commercialism in there, but, but they do fantastic models at that scale. I, I, I cannot wait to see an F4 in 1 200th scale. Um, it will fit an advantage base, <laughs> just. <laughs> just barely. Um, and, and yeah, um, with, there will have to be a certain amount of careful calculation as to where the pivot point is going to be. Um, and actually, I think the uh, F-105 is marginally longer, so that'll be even worse. Yeah, uh, i th- I'll be I curious think, to see how, yeah. it, how it works out. I, I'm optimistic about it, knowing that uh, even if they tweak the scale slightly to make uh, make everything work with the bases, um, yeah. my attitude is, is I want enough uh, detail in the models that it makes it more than an exercise in painting them gray or camouflage. Absolutely. That, that there's enough detail for decals to be worthwhile. I mean, even though um, our, our last episode that we've, uh, that is about to get published with um, Kevin from Miscellaneous Miniatures, where, where we talked about cheating at one six hundred scale and putting mm-hmm. in detail via fake panel lines. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. That I think one two hundredth is a really good scale uh, on the yeah. table. Um, I think we may just be hitting the upper ends of it, <laughs> which we actually we already hit with the B29. You guys have seen the photos. That- yeah, I've got two of those in order from um, from Misk Mini. Not Misk Mini's, um, <laughs> Armature Miniature, yeah. Dave, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah... Um, but the way I look at it is, it's an investment. I'll get to use them in Korea, and I can use I can use them in late war Jap- over Japan. So exactly, you know, and I, I'm not buying one. I'm going to buy two just because. Um, yes, because. Yeah, I, I laughed when Brett basically fell off the wagon on that one, and so he uh, he bought both the metal one for our prototype, and then the uh, the resin ones for actually the uh, yeah. for to paint up. So I I chuckled at that. Uh, and I mean, it's it's. I'll, I'll be honest that that if Andy ever intends to retire, it'll be when they produce the B seventeen. Um, <laughs> I, I think think that if if Warlord can get a B seventeen model in resin um, out in the next year or so, um, yeah, I think. Uh, <laughs> At that point, Andy can high five all of us and say, "All right, yeah, well, I don't, we've, yeah, Blood I mean, Red Skies has hit its point." Well, I have eight B-17s in um, plastic, um, and <laughs> it's a sight to be seen. It is fantastic. Um, the only thing that's wrong with, with playing four-engine bombs in that sort of scale is the advantage base system looks strange. Right. right. Um, so I would, I would strongly right. recommend, we, if, if you ever do that, if you're going to put a, a box on the table, just put markers next to them to say that the advantage level is. But yeah, yeah, we, we proxied that. ours, so we, we had mosquitoes flying around as our four-engine bombers, so it didn't look yeah. too strange uh, when we did it. But now that we've we've got the full B-29s, and don't don't mention B-17s to, to <laughs> our guys, please. Yeah. <laughs> They'll start buying them, and, and I'll be there with well, Chris and Brett watching them paint them up. <laughs> the, at the time when I got mine, there were, there were um, Academy. Academy right. mini kits did a range of... Um, Giant of the Sky or something, and they were cheap as chips if you could find them because they were all like out of production. Nobody was. They weren't the greatest kits, but they actually look fine on the table. Um, 
so yeah, I bought up everywhere I was. Got to the point where I was buying them up from eBay in Japan and things like this. And but <laughs> yeah, uh, because you know we can we all get uh, a little bit of sort of uh, tunnel vision on these things. But yeah, they're, they're lovely models, and uh, I love getting them on the table. I'm not looking forward to getting the two six twos into them, though. I think that's going to be uh, <laughs> shocking. I'm going to let somebody else play me two six twos. I mean, I, I love the airplane; it's always fascinated me mm -hmm. for years. But uh, late war in in Blood Red Skies right now just doesn't interest me. There's so many other things I want to do before I get to two six twos that it, yeah. it's been kind of funny as as they've released. I'm like, eh, meh, whatever. Someone else can go buy a box of those and play them. I want to do uh, I want to do early and mid war stuff. So we'll see. Well, I mean, the other problem with the 262 is that you buy the 262 box, there's six of them, um, and you buy the Ace, that's seven, and they're 75 points each, I think. So it's, <laughs> it's just, yeah. Um, I'm not going to feel so that it, anytime soon. Yeah, yeah but if you're going to play in a tournament and it's a 500-point tournament, you ain't going to see 262s that often. Yeah, exactly, which is yeah. probably good. It's probably Yeah, good. yeah, um, but yeah. No, I mean, I think that, that the, the way that the tournament's seen can... Hopefully it will evolve. It shouldn't impact too much on the, the narrative historical players. Um, we think that the the tournament sort of setup should be okay, should work. Um, we will always, because tournament players are particularly um, evil. Unforgiving. <laughs> yeah, there's always going to be the, the magic mix of cards and how you deal right. with that but as long as the tournament organizers given enough flexibility which from warlord's point of view they always will be because warlord have been very clear that that um if you want to organize a tournament then you know they'll support you as much as they can but they won't insist that you do any particular thing right. um that's good actually this is a very very valid point and an important point i should make warlord have been really quite um reasonable and positive about third-party models and the things that we've done on the ready room producing stuff that will allow people to play models that warlord don't make right. um right. their their approach to that has been refreshing um there's been other game systems that are based on historical game systems that oh well we'll deliberately restrict what's available well, and so I always think that's to. frustrating. You, you've you've heard me yeah. pontificate about it with the the 40k scene, where I left 40k when it was a hobbyist war game and came back where it was a Games Workshop pure miniatures display, and that, yeah. that wasn't that wasn't how I played the game. You you had a you you made your force off of what you wanted, not what was sold to you from the company's line. So I think yeah. I think that's a great thing with Warlord that they've realized they can't make every miniature out there, nor should they try. Um, yeah. That that really it gives them a chance to concentrate on evolving the game system, growing the community, getting people who want to buy box sets that will make them uh, a a decent inroads into the game. Uh, but know that people are going to pick up some of their miniatures from other places. But you know what? You still need our data card. So, <laughs> well, it, it's 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 to me it's been a very good. Model. Yeah, they've been very good about it, and I think that we should say that. I mean, it's easy to point at Warlord uh, and some of their production issues, and you know, with everything that goes on. It, it they are, there are there are things that that they get wrong, but. Um, Certainly, they're good people, and their heart is in the right place. 
Right. Um, you know, and, you know, well, and we know it's always going to come down to the bottom line. At some point, yeah. uh, card decks cost money, and they have to be popular, and they have to be purchased. So uh, you, you could put your five favorite airplanes uh, in, a, in an expansion deck, and if they're only your five favorites, <laughs> then exactly, you're yeah. buy an expansion deck. It's, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, achieve yeah, the and purposes. And I think that that's something that people don't, from the gaming side, don't really realize. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, everybody wants, I'll, I'll say it now, everybody wants a pack of buffaloes, you know. <laughs> Will Warlord do a buffalo squadron? You well, know I where don't. you can stick your pack of buffaloes, gladiators, albacores? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the, the, these, these are things that, I mean, the, the, that joke on the ready room about you can't have a buffalo, it, it was amazing. <laughs> it was like, oh, but if we did this, this, just shout out to the community which aircraft would you like us to start up because we've got this we have quite a long beta start list that that in deference to warlord we haven't produced the whole thing um because they may well want to do some of this stuff later but but they've been very reasonable and says well you know as long as you don't just publish every damn thing that's in the you know <laughs> right. the, 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 you know so it's like well what aircraft would the the, the community like to see us get stats for and I was, com- Andy was confidently expecting it was the TA-152. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking the Tempest or something like that, but buffaloes. <laughs> and it was just like, we were just, just, just like head in our hands. And Andy, uh, the clown car. Damn all of you and your buffaloes. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, right, okay, uh, we'll do buffaloes. Um, so we did buffaloes. Um, the, the stats... The stats are there, and that, that was really an interesting process from my point of view because I, I did most of the stats with Roger, and we, we ran through. And when you read about the Buffalo, there's 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 actually many different aircraft that that we think of as the Buffalo, right? Uh, right. And the, the the Marine Buffalo is different to the U.S. Navy Buffalo, is different to the Finnish Buffalo, is different to the RAF Buffalo, which is different to the KNIL Buffalo. Um, and we have this situation when you're doing the stats as well. Well, I can blurb on a blog and what have you and give you different variations for all of those. But if we're going to do a data card, it's got to be one data card that covers them all. Um, so so there's, there's choices that get made when we do stat things up, which are not ideal. Um, so we, we, there is a Buffalo data card out there somewhere that, that's... It's a merging of all of the various <laughs> ones, but um, the Corsair classic example. Yep. Um, we have a, a data card for the Corsair where we effectively the F4U5, I believe it is. It's it's the last World War Two production example, and it's a monster. It's big, bruising, very very fast, um, very capable fighter, um, and it's perfectly usable in Korea as a wood mover and what have you. As I've done that. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the Corsair that the Marines are flying in 1943. Nope. Um, And, yeah, we we have that issue with... We have to sort of stick a pin at a certain point, and the tendency is to make it as good as possible. There's a similar situation with the Spitfire 14 where we gave it heavy hitter. Right. Um, it got a heavy hitter because it had four twenty millimeter cannons, but um, actually, that version of Spitfire with the four twenty millimeter cannons never really saw service. Uh, with hindsight, we probably should have dialed that back a bit. The classic example was actually the ME one hundred nine G, where we put the G stats out onto the ready room. Uh, in effect, what we were doing was the G ten which is the um, souped up polished right. version of the, the whole thing. And it is so much faster than the the standard G. 
Um, and when we looked at it, we thought, well, actually, that leaves us no room to do the 109K, which we <laughs> yeah. did want to do, because the G10 is, to all intents and purposes, it's, it's a K. a K at that point. Yeah. Um, so we dialed back the to the standard. I think we used the G6 as the the um, the base for the G card that came out, uh, and then <laughs> in in a moment of um, well, I don't know what you'd call it, but but when we actually produced the model, or when Wallard produced the model, they were keen on making it a G10 so that they could match it with Hartman. Um, <laughs> so we have a box of ebby 109 g's which is started out as g6s but the model is the g10 um so yeah and that's the beauty of blood red skies <laughs> we're not gonna judge yeah. <laughs> well the, the, the other thing is that, that that is a beautiful model by the way that that g10 that they've done is is a gorgeous ME 109 model yeah i, I didn't um, uh, order any of them i think uh, brett uh, yeah. ordered a box i uh, i have been Trying to trying to keep my uh, spending well well in hand, but have not been so successful. So yeah, well, I, I've I've had a disaster recently on the spending front because I've, as I say, I've just ordered some B twenty nines. That will kill the budget immediately. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't help, um, and also um, all the airstrike stuff starting to pile up and exactly. You know, it's it's it is where it is. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 the um, the whole. I think the direction that Blood Red Skies is going is a positive thing. We're going to get some um, new Korean war jets, Panther and the uh, Shooting right. Star, I believe. Right. Um, and yeah, they both add another dimension to the Korean game. Uh, and then hopefully, at the end of the year, if we can all agree, so I'm, I'm absolutely certain we will have Vietnam. Uh, we will. In a, yeah. <laughs> it's, the question it's, is how we'll get there and whose bloody body will be left by the side of the road. <laughs> well, I, I don't really think that that's, that's necessarily the issue. I think the thing about Vietnam is that, that proof of concept, we're, we're there. We've, we've yeah, got proof yeah. of concept. It works. We're just talking about details, what gets put in and what gets left out. Um, and, yeah, I, I think from yeah. my perspective, a lot of it is just it's getting the feel right, and yeah. and we've gone round and round about playing playing through something enough times to make sure it feels right. It isn't just validating that the rules aren't broken, and that's yeah. that's kind of the the tough part um, from my experience playtesting with Blood Red Skies and then other games previously was that um, it's it's fairly easy unless your games workshop i guess to get to the to the rules aren't broken phase yeah <laughs> but then to get to get the feel right really just takes a lot of iterations and and trying some different scenarios and and mm-hmm. going from everything from two fighters to six fighters to eight fighters you know what yeah. you know what 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 makes it still feel correct um, so I, I think we're going in the right direction and, and at least what i've told the community every time they've asked is you know give us the time we want to make sure that uh, that the the product we tee up to andy as the as the play testers uh is is good enough that he can take it and tweak it and, and move it in the direction he wants yeah. to go um and and it has something that's fun but also isn't isn't uh totally uh, off the rails <laughs> yeah the, the biggest the biggest problem we face is is trying to get a game that works with two player two two planes aside absolutely uh, and also works with 12 planes aside and i'm not even sure mcgally really works two versus two it i've played it that way a lot um it's fun it it's just i have every once in a while i've i've seen it where um it's just over so quick and i yeah. just kind of laugh and go well that's kind of how i 
visual engagement yeah, works. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it's that, that situation. Well, that that's exactly it. It's 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 the that that two versus two with Miguelie can be over on turn one. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and yeah, and much as I, I don't think it's a great gaming experience, but it actually probably reflects quite a lot of the the Mig sort of versus Saber combats that yeah, happen. Yeah, you know, it's just he comes out of nowhere. There's a quick burst of fire, and then one side's gone home, yep. uh, or, or spiraled in. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting, and, and I've played Megali quite regularly with dozens of planes aside, and it's a much better game the more you you scale it up. I don't know at what point it will be too much, but we certainly yeah. had 20, 24, 26 aircraft on the table at once and not suffered a problem. Um, and it, it was a ground strike scenario when we did actually totally just load it out, and it was interesting. And yeah, it yeah. felt right. I think I saw and some of the photos from that where you... Yeah. Uh, we had uh, some of the aircraft out there, and that you know we'll we'll scale some of our stuff up for Coastal Con uh, here at the end of February uh, yeah. in the states, and and we've got my MIGs and uh, Sabers with uh, with all the MIGs and the B29s that uh, that Brett has. So we'll we'll see how that works as we scale it up from six v six, which is what we usually have been playing. Um, yeah. But but you know my experience is it it, it will be fine. You'll just allot a little bit more time, but uh, yeah. as long as everyone's everyone's a, a skilled player it shouldn't be too bad yeah so I, I suppose back to the ready room and, and where we started from um the joy of the ready room from my point of view is um and i think from, from andy's point of view because he doesn't have to do it is that um because it's not my job um i i have other things that that happen i'm not invested in <laughs> financially in the success of the ready room one way or another exactly. it uh it does allow us to be independent and that's quite important and i know it upsets some people sometimes and you know um we can criticize warlord when when it's due um and people can you know be reasonable about it and it's uh, you know if warlord are going to compete um their aim is going to be we're going to be the best producers of of miniature wargaming around there right. and that's that's the way to compete you know to compete on quality rather than to try and restrict um and yeah i think that, that warlord are very good at that they they may not be the best quality um it's safe to say that there are problems with some of the metal models and everybody knows that um that it's not the best material for the circumstances that we've got and i know <laughs> i know dave over at armaments in miniature is uh uh, I don't know. His 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 sales have gone through the roof um, <laughs> to the point where he can't actually get new models out because he's constantly churning out the ones that people are requesting. Oh yeah, uh, and, and, and if people want to know, there's there's sometimes a three or four week wait if you've never ordered from AIM. And <laughs> this last series of playtest models, he's like, "I'm sorry, I can't get them out in three weeks." And I said, "That's fine. Uh, yeah. I'm in Asia, so take your time. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I won't uh, be using them." I've 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 got nothing but good things to say about AIM. They've been fantastic. They're awesome. Dave, Dave runs a great great operation. Yeah, and it's it's people actually it's it's this thing that, that there's a generation of gamers now who don't seem to understand um, that we have this. Um, you can have this situation where you can have third party models involved in the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's 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 a sort of ooh. 
standoff is that is that legitimate well actually yeah why not actually that's how we've designed it <laughs> yeah um and and Waller, i mean i'm sure Waller would very much like to produce well i'm absolutely certain Waller would very much like to produce a range as big as aim has right uh and one day they may well do so but it's going to take a while getting there so absolutely. up to that point they'd far rather that you bought aircraft and played the game from somewhere else and keep right. the game growing than um, artificially restrict the game and, and that's a, an enlightened and um, positive position to have but yeah from the ready room's point of view we'll always try and encourage people to play um, although I can get a little bit annoyed with some of the proposals I, I think that, that often there's a thing in wargaming where you take something that you consider to be a beer and pretzels game and add layers to it, um, add extra detail to it that, with hindsight, probably isn't needed. Right. Um, and that, that's that's just a natural thing with gamers. I think that we can improve on this. Um, but uh, and sometimes I just think, well, you could just actually play the game a little bit more and see the nuances in there. Um, <laughs> Because there are well, a lot. That's the uh, the difficulty, but the nice thing about compressed stat lines is we know yes. there's things that aren't super detailed, and we could make them more detailed, but then it wouldn't be Blood Red Skies. It wouldn't play uh -huh. quickly. Um, and, and in my mind, it, it wouldn't be the game that I'm looking to play, which is something that's not uh, super complex with a lot of record keeping and things like that. But How we've been talking feel for about uh, an hour oh, and 15, God, yes. so... Yeah. Before we bore the rest of the podcast team with our reminiscences as old guys, <laughs> yeah, um, are there any other things you wanted to cover, you want to talk about uh, either for the Ready Room or where, uh, at least in your opinion, Blood Red Skies is going, things people need to know uh, before we wrap things up? Um, I, I think that um, the director, Andy's in charge, and he's obviously he's got lots of projects on, so he's... Um, going to be drawn in different directions. He's not going to be sat every hour God gives uh, writing Blood Red Skies. Exactly. However, it is his private project. This is his baby. It's it's unlike a lot of other projects that that you know somebody's come to him and said Andy Chambers, internationally renowned games designer, design me a game that does this. Um, in this particular instance, this is one where he's gone to to Warlord and said um, I've got this game uh, and it's been a little pet project of his for quite a long time so he's committed to it in ways that I don't think it's necessarily the case with other systems I mean, not, not necessarily saying that he's going to walk away from other systems or anything like that but Blood Red Skies is here to stay um, will it go to World War One? <laughs> yes um, no it, no, it won't. don't do it. it. <laughs> well, we, we had a discussion about it, um, and the big stumbling block was um, the models. Um, the, it, it, it is a, a major issue to get a World War One squadron-level dogfighting game with enough models. They probably would need to be in plastic. They're probably going to need to be self-assemble. Uh and that's that's quite a big sort of step, um, and a massive outlay in costs, which which I don't think we're in a position to consider at the moment. When I say we, the powers that be, 
I certainly am. But <laughs> I'm not putting my my house on the remortgaging my house to to, to justify it. Exactly. Um, and and that's probably what it will need if if we go in there. But I think at some point in time, five years down the line, there'll be the blood red barren red skies or something. We'll, if we'll I wanted there. lines and rigging and cloth, I would be playing black seas. <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> don't bring it into my air battles. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that 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 was something that put me off black seas <laughs> when people are just rigging these and the models are gorgeous. And oh, I'm they're thinking, beautiful. And I look yeah. at them. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, life is too short. Uh, I, 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 I don't want to do want that to, with airplanes. Uh, yeah. Well, th- that's the thing with with my model aircraft at the moment. Is the first thing that I do is take off all the extraneous bits. Yeah. Um, because because you know th- there's quite a few models where you're going to just have scattered bits of debris on your your gaming table. So, sort of. <laughs> particularly as Blood Red Skies is is very tactile. You do move the planes around a lot. You touch the models a lot. You, the tilting of the bases is if the yeah. models aren't solid. Then you are going to scatter component parts <laughs> all the way across your gaming table. So yeah, um, I must admit, I mean, I got some of the trumpeter um, models for right. wildcats and and um, stuff like that. And the first thing that happened was was bits snapping off left, right, and centre. Like, mm, back to the drawing board on that. So yeah, the, the, that that's the other thing. Yeah, we so we won't. That'll be a while off World War One, but I think it'll happen. I'm fairly certain that if we can deliver on Vietnam, we will get um, Arab-Israeli wars as well, just to keep right. Roger quiet as much as anything. That and the <laughs> fact that how anybody can not love the idea of a of a Mirage Three, you know, exactly. it's 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 iconic. It's it's a gorgeous aeroplane and. You know, the, and there if is you no lose, way you can still poke your opponent in the eye with it. So. Yeah, it, it, it's the <laughs> the ultimate sort of gaming sort of dart, isn't it? Exactly, that. it is. Um, but beyond that, it is. It, it, it would have to be a total rewrite. Um, but yeah, we've 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 got that under control. Uh, the Second World War stuff. Um, how far that's going to go? Well, we know the release schedule for twenty twenty. So far, sadly, no French and no Italians, which I think is is unfortunate. But Warlord just don't have the capacity, right? So, yeah, that's a shame. Um, but I'm sure we can get some cards out there. I mean, you guys have done the Italians um, from uh, Lee Pursuit, which I think is is excellent. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can we can do something like that. And and the support will be there from Andy to do that. He's He's not going to sort of leap up and down and say, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, <laughs> exactly. So you- well, th- that's the thing is that, you know, I want to thank you and Andy both for um, being so accommodating for uh, these three Americans showing up and, and saying, <laughs> we want to we want to be part of the community and we want to help you guys uh, field some of the information. We want to help you play test. We want to help you, uh, you know, grow the community uh, in what is, is arguably a, an exciting game, an exciting genre. Um, but sometimes, as it is with smaller manufacturers, uh, you, you don't have the, um, the immediate outlay into every part of the market. Um, so you guys have been great in, in letting us uh, get the word out. And I've, I've enjoyed uh, so far traveling around the world a little bit and, and playing some Blood Red Skies. Um, so the thing that we'd like to throw out to all the listeners is 
you know, listen to the episode, give us your feedback, uh, specifically in the ready room where you can poke Ken and I both in the eye personally, <laughs> say that we're totally off base, um, but also over uh, on, the, on the Lead Pursuit uh, Facebook page, on our Instagram page, or, uh, or over on our website, you can leave us uh, comments there. It's been great chatting to you, Doug. Uh, um, but yeah, anytime, yeah. 